0: Welcome to Base Camp, where men join together to seek deeper understanding of authentic menhood and apply principles from God's Word to our daily lives. If you're looking for the next level in men's ministry, join us and experience a life of Christian fellowship with men sold out for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May God be praised. Um, all right, we have quite a bit of material to, talk, to cover today. This is basically... Three trials well, two trials and a hearing really that Paul has to that Paul goes through uh, following his his um, time in uh, Jerusalem and so I'm just going to kind of jump right into it we're going I'm going to just walk through the narrative we're just going to walk through the story and see what we can pick up as we go along uh, through it so um, probably move pretty qu- pretty quickly this morning I apologize in advance for that, but since we've got a lot to cover uh, I want to make sure that we get a, a good thorough uh, uh, presentation of it so Um, All right, so the first thing I want to quickly just point out here um, are the cast of characters that we're going to find in the text today. Uh, And just to point out, um, there are some I call religious oppressors, okay? These would be the Jews uh, from Asia that you would have heard about last week. Um, We have the Pharisees who are represented by the high priest Ananias and his lawyer Tertullus, uh, and then the Sadducees show up here in sort of an indirect way when we have some discussion about the resurrection and whether there is one or not. But I point these out because their motive, I want you to take, a, take note of what their motive is. Their motive is to put an end to the ministry of Paul at any and all costs, okay? So just bear that in the back of your mind. Okay, next in our cast of characters is the political oppressors. Uh, okay, the first is Felix. He was the tyrannical and corrupt governor of Judea from about uh, A.D. 52 to about A.D. 59, 60. Um, and he was, really, he was willing to suppress you know, any kind of, of, of dissension at, at all costs. Um, he was also an opportunist, as you see. We'll learn a little more about these as we go into them. Uh, he, of course, is, is succeeded by Festus, who's the governor um, from A.D. 59 to 60 and also shows up in the, in the text today. Uh, more of a straight shooter, uh, interested in keeping the peace, but uh, he only lasts two years on the job. Uh, and finally, we have King Herod Agrippa II. He's the Jewish political king over the territories northeast uh, and north and northeast of the Sea of Galilee. Um, um, and again, he was appointed, he was a great grandson of Herod the Great, uh, and though he wasn't a ruler of Judea, he was appointed by Claudius to be the curator of the temple, uh, which means he controlled the temple treasury, and had the power to appoint and dispose, uh, or depose of, high, of the high priests. Um, so, their motive, keep the peace, and extract some benefits, okay? Um, finally, we have Paul. We all know who Paul is, and we all know what his motor, is, motor, motor, his motor and his motive is. Uh, that's that's truth. Paul's obviously seeking and sharing the truth. So all of these 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 characters kind of intertwine in all of this. Now, before um, before I jump into the the text for today, a little bit of background. Uh, the story begins as you're going to recall, recall from last week. Uh, w- really well before chapter twenty four. Um, where Paul was in the temple to undergo purification rites. You might recall from last week f- from Scott's great presentation. And by the way, isn't Scott amazing? I, I, I got to tell you, Scott, you're not God, but you're the closest thing to omnipresent that I know. Every time I turn around, you're doing something in this church. I, ex- I expect him one day, like I'm going to turn around in my house looking for my glasses. He's going to be like, oh, here, I'm right here. But uh, anyway, Scott, great, I know you did a great job last week. We're just going to cover a little bit of what we talked about there. So he's, he's in the temple, and um, he's conducting a Jewish rite, basically. He's not there, you know, it's not a rite that's mandatory for Christians. He's, he's there worshiping with these people, conducting a Jewish rite. Um, Okay, so the, the the text from 21 says this, that when seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up the crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law and this place. And besides, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has, and has defiled this holy place. Okay, there's there's a lot of obvious misrepresentation of what actually went on there last um Okay, But basically, the Jews from Asia manufacture an uproar, and then they blame it on Paul. And they do this as a front for seizing him to to basically kill him. That's what they want to do. A Roman cohort steps in to take control of the matter, and Paul convinces the commander to let him make his case to the Jews, as you learned about last week. Um, And he gives his testimony... Uh, and he gets to this point where he, you know, Jesus tells him, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And that, of course, creates an uproar again. Um, and so uh, with, with this uproar, he's, he's you know, or at the conclusion of this, he's released and, and told to appear before the Sanhedrin. Um, and then there's more threatened violence. And to protect him, the commander takes him vo- by force to the barracks. And then after a failed assassination attempt, he's transferred to Caesarea for a hearing before Felix. Okay, so. Boom, all that stuff just happened and this is how we end up here, now before Felix. So, uh, what we're going to do is just look through uh, this first trial where he comes before this, the governor of Judea. It says, after Paul had been summoned, um, and this is going to be Tertullus's case, okay, or the, the Pharisees' case. After Paul had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him saying to the governor, since we have through you attained such peace, and since your providence reforms are being carried out for this nation, we acknowledge this in every way <clears throat> and everywhere, most excellent Felix, with all thankfulness. Now what I want to do is walk through uh, you know, the, the, the charges against them and what's really behind them. Um, and, and so tutorialist begins with this, um, the legal term I think is brown nosing, yeah. or kissing butt, okay? But basically, you know, I mean, Felix, as I said before, he was a brutal oppressor of, uh, of, of opposition. He suppressed it brutally. Uh, his so-called reforms were, were, were more like terror campaigns. Um, and it was actually his mis- gross mishandling of a dispute between Syrians and Judeans that got him booted from office. So, uh, but Tertullus is now saying these things about how great his reforms are. He's, he, he's setting aside truth for his own agenda, which is gonna be a common theme. That's the reason I raised that up. Okay. And he goes on, it says, but that I may not weary you any further, I beg you to grant us by your kindness a brief hearing. For we have found this man a real pest and a fellow who stirs up dissension among the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Okay. So the first, uh, the first anu- uh, allegation that Tertullus manufactures against Paul is essentially that he's an insurgent. Okay. He's implying, well, he's actually pretty much saying right out that, that Paul is a threat to the Roman state. Okay. That's going to really resonate, obviously, with the emperor, um, and, and a threat to the Jewish nation. He also describes him as a ringleader of a sect, which would, again, caric- uh, that characterization would have would struck a chord with any Roman leader because they are dealing with uprisings and sex and, and illegal sex quite a bit. Um, and he goes on to say, uh, and he even tried to desecrate the temple, and then we arrested him. We wanted to judge him according to our own law, but Lysias, the commander, came along and with much violence took him out of our hands, ordering his accusers to come before you. By examining him yourself concerning all these matters, you'll be able to ascertain the things of which we accuse him, okay. So, Tertullus finally accuses Paul of this, of attempting to desecrate the temple. Okay, this is the same false charge that the Asian Jews had leveled against Paul, if you'll recall, um, when he was in the temple. but but Tertullus changes his tune a little. He doesn't say that Paul actually desecrated the temple, you'll note. Know. He said he attempts to de- desecrate the temple. Why? Because he's got no evidence, he's got no basis for his case. So, so he's shifting this from a, from a crime of, of actual, uh, you know, an actually committed crime for, to a crime of intent to commit, which is a much more slippery charge, but a little more, you know, difficult to deal with in a kangaroo court like this. So, um, but, but notice that little change. Now, before we move on to Paul's response, though, I want to just take stock of a few things that are going on here. Uh, neither Tertullus nor Ananias obviously have any interest in actual truth or justice, okay? They have one goal, and their only goal is annihilating Paul and his ministry. Um, and this is the truth that he, he's espousing, this, what Paul stands for, threatens their very power structure, and though it had to be stopped at all costs. Um, and I think we can learn from something from this, is that the truth... The truth that we hold to is always going to have enemies, as long as Satan's in the world. Uh, and they will always try to suppress it when it threatens their interests. So, so those operating out of fear in a quest for power and control will always seek to suppress the truth uh, if it exposes them. And it ought to it cause us to stop and consider how we handle situations where people are more interested in protecting their position uh, than in upholding the truth. It might also cause us from time to time to consider if we've ever done the same thing. Um, Okay, so let's get on to Paul's response. So Paul, first thing he says, uh, when the governor had not for him to speak, Paul responded, knowing that for many years you have been a judge to this nation. I cheerfully make my defense, since you you can take note of the fact that no more than 12 days ago I went to Jerusalem to worship. Paul notes two things here. First, he came to worship, not to incite a riot, which is obvious from the facts of the case. Second, he'd only been there for less than 12 days. It's hardly enough time to plan and foment a whole large insurrection. Next he says, Neither in the temple nor in the synagogues nor in the city itself did they find me carrying a discussion with anyone or causing a riot. Nor can they prove to you the charges of which they now accuse me. So his next argument is, is a basic simple no evidence argument. Uh, They've presented no evidence of even a discussion with any other people, never mind some kind of a declaration of war against the state. Um, So they can't can't prove his charge of rebellion. And with no evidence, they have no basis of a case against him. Um, And then uh, Paul next addresses their charge that he's the ringleader of a dangerous sect, he says. But this I admit to you that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve God of our, the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, having a hope in God, <clears throat> which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Okay, so Paul addresses this charge uh, with both an admission and a correction. He admits that he is a follower of Jesus, okay, he is a follower of the way, but he corrects their error in calling it a sect, okay, noting, in fact, that this, the way, is actually the culmination of the very prophecies that these Pharisees themselves hold uh, fast to, Um, so what they're calling a blasphemy is actually just a complete truth um, and a fulfillment of God's promise of Messiah, So the problem isn't so much a blasphemous sect. The problem is that they can't really, they don't even understand their own scriptures. Okay, so Paul's pointing this out. And he adds, but there were some Jews from Asia um, who ought to have been present before you and to make an accusation if they should have anything against me. So this is a pretty pretty important point that Paul raises here. Um, He basically says that the very people who manufactured all these charges in the first place, they're not even here to argue them. They're not even here to defend them. This is important because under Roman law, anybody who falsely accuses another in court and is shown to have done so, gets the death penalty. These guys, the Jews, the Asian Jews knew what they were in for if they showed up with a pack of lies. That's why they're nowhere on the scene. And Paul's pointing this out. Uh, he does say this other thing, other than uh, this one statement, which I shouted while standing among them. For the resurrection of the dead, I am on trial for you today. Okay, what's, what's this all about? Um, Paul is referring there to his trial, as you may remember from, from last week, um, before the Sanhedrin, uh, the Council of Elders, back in chapter 23. Uh, 23, 6 says this. It says, But perceiving that one group of Sadducees and the other, were, excuse me, but perceiving that one group were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the council, Brethren, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I'm on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. And as he said this, there occurred a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. So now we see the Sadducees coming into vision here, and we see that Paul is identifying with the Pharisees and, again, completing the picture regarding the Messiah and the resurrection that the Pharisees all hold to, but they they don't want him. Um, He creates this stir between those who, who reject truth altogether in the Sadducees, okay, they reject they reject everything but the five books of the Bible and um, they don't really reject the prophets and they absolutely reject the resurrection. So that, that's just not true that's truth, not truth. Um, and then he, he but he, you know, he also has this issue that those who accept it in part, the truth, the Pharisees, okay, um, they reject him too. So the Sadducees and the Pharisees are both in the same boat here with respect to rejecting the truth. The whole truth stands alone, Paul stands alone. Okay, so uh, let me back up there. So um, let's talk just a second about Felix's what I would call non-response, okay? And and this is in Acts 24, 22 through 26. I just wanna say a few things about it. I'm not gonna read it because we don't have time for that. But uh, in response, I want you to note that Felix, again, does nothing to resolve the case. He essentially punts on the decision and puts Paul back into detention. So he doesn't turn him over to the Jews, but he doesn't free him either. Um, his motivations are pretty clear. First, through Paul, the Holy Spirit had convicted both Felix and his wife, Drusilla, who, by the way, had left another man for Felix, um, that they were living un- unrighteous lives. Okay, so Felix is like, I don't want this guy near me, you know. Uh, made him a little uncomfortable there. Also, the text tells us that Felix was hoping for a bribe from Paul. Stick him in prison, wait it out. At some point, he'll come along and pay me, and I'll let him go. That, you know, maybe I'll let him go, maybe I won't. But third, I think the the most important point is that Felix was wanting to curry favor with the Jews. Um, He needed them for political reasons. At the bottom line is that Felix had no interest in truth uh, that was inconvenient to his personal interests. And again, uh, another point here, while while some people are motivated by fear and power to cover up the truth, others are motivated by self-centered interests to ignore or set aside the truth, especially when it's inconvenient to their lives. Um, And so I might ask, are there times when your personal interests have led you to set aside God's truth? And how do we respond when these temptations arise? We don't want to be like Felix, obviously. All right. So now we come to the trial before Festus. Um, uh, Festus replaces Felix, who was removed, I think as I mentioned before, by by mishandling a dispute between the Jews and the Assyrians. Um, But he leaves Paul in jail. And he does this as a favor to the Jews, okay? So this is, again, another th- theme we see with the Roman leadership is they want a curry favor with the Jews so they can keep them, keep them uh, at peace. So the Jews, uh, Festus is now in, in place and the Jews come to Jerusalem uh, asking for Festus to uh, put, uh, bring Paul, uh, put Paul on trial there. Uh, again, it's another uh, Jewish, the Jewish leaders are now seeking to, to kill Paul by requesting his delivery to Jerusalem for, for trial. Um, Festus denies their request. He says I, um, we're not going to have the trial here, but he schedules a trial in Caesarea. Okay, so that's now we're back down in Caesarea, and um, the trial begins before Festus. Uh, it says, after Paul arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him, which they could not prove. While Paul said in his own defense, "I have committed no offense either against the law or the Jews or against the temple." or against Caesar, okay, Acts 25, seven through eight, so, excuse me, <clears> throat> throat's getting a little dry here, um, so again, these are the same charges that the, uh, the, the Pharisees had leveled against uh, Paul with Felix, um, and again, Paul presents his no evidence defense, and Luke doesn't give us a whole lot more about what goes on uh, with this trial before Festus. Um, um, but, but we, we do see from this that there is no foundation for the allegations against Paul and Festus sees this as well. Um, even though he's a much less corrupt jeweler, uh, uh a ruler than Felix was, though, he's, he's still got a problem. He can't just set Paul free, uh, because he's concerned about the power of the Jews and appeasing them. So basically, um, his motivation is how do I get this guy, Paul and all these, and this problem out of my hair? Okay, um, okay. But Festus, so this is how he attempts to do it. Uh, Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial um, uh, uh, before me on these charges? Okay. Now, Paul sees, again, right through this, he knows that there would be no fair trial in Jerusalem, um, only a pretty viable threat that he would probably be killed on the way. Uh, So his next decision, it appears like it's one where he has no choice. Okay. But we're going to see later that that's that's not really what's going on. but Paul said, and this is, this is his response, Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. I have done no wrong to the Jews, so you also know, uh, very well know, as you also very well know. If then I'm a wrongdoer and committed, and have committed anything worthy of death, do not refuse to, I do not refuse to die. But if none of those things is true of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. Here's Paul's famous appeal to Caesar, okay? So, what happens? Well, Paul's appeal to Caesar kind of helps Festus out, right? It resolves it resolves one problem. It takes uh, uh, the appeal to Caesar takes it out of his hands, but he resolves one problem, or his problems resolves in one way, but it creates another one. Okay, having found nothing more, and it says in the text in Acts twenty-five thirteen through twenty-seven, um, or I'm sorry. In Acts 13, uh, it says there that, but having found nothing more than quote points of disagreement with him about their own religion and about a dead man Jesus, Festus was at a loss to articulate the charges against Paul um, in his report to the Caesar. In fact, he says it himself. He says, "For it seems absurd to me in sending a prisoner not to indicate also the charges against him." Okay, so he's got this problem. He's he's supposed to send him to Caesar, but he's got no report to send to Caesar about why he's even sending him to Caesar, which I think would probably not make Caesar very happy. Uh, so he turns to, to uh, Herod Agrippa, okay, the Jewish king, uh, for counsel on this when Herod Agrippa happens to be uh, in Caesarea. all right, And here we end up, Herod Agrippa says, I want to I hear the, the trial for myself from Paul. So we end up now with this final trial before Herod Agrippa. Um, now, I'm, I'm just going to walk, there's a, there's a lot of text in Paul's basically response to Grippa. I'm not going to go through it all. I'm just going to hit some highlights and then I want to just touch on one thing that happens. Uh, first of all, in, uh, in 26, 2 through 3, Paul appeals to, appeals to Grippa's knowledge and authority as the Jewish king. Okay, so he knows that Agrippa is going to understand his arguments. He also, uh, in 26.4 and, and 26.9 through 11, he establishes his own credibility as a former Pharisee and a once persecutor of the way. In other words, he's putting himself right in the same shoes as the Pharisees who are persecuting him and saying, trust me, I've been there, I know, who, I know what you're all about. Paul also describes his conversion, how he uh, connecting his Jewish faith in Messiah as a Pharisee to his new faith in Jesus as the Messiah as a Christian. That's 26, uh, 12 through 15. So again, he's just walking through, this is what happened. Um, and then he prescribes his commissioning and resulting ministry in 26, 16 through 20. Um, and then he's, um, oh, let me go back to that. Uh, sorry, I got, I'm not sure if I have the right slide there. Um, he says this, though. Okay. <laughs> All right, so I'm missing a slide. It uh, looks like, uh, no, I'm not missing a slide. I'm not going through my slides fast enough. Sorry. <laughs> uh, it's still early. Um, he says this, uh, so having obtained from God, I stand to this day testifying both to the small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place, that Christ was to suffer and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead he would be the first to proclaim light to both the Jewish people and to the Gentiles, okay? So he just cites out the truth right there. Um, this, this, this prompts a reaction from Festus. He, he thinks Paul's downright loony tunes, of course he would because he doesn't understand the truth. But someone else there does understand it. So Paul's not so crazy as Festus claims. Um, he, he knows who he's speaking to. And he says this to Agrippa, he says, for the king knows about the matters and I speak to him also with confidence since I am persuaded that none of these things escapes his notice. For so uh, this has not been done in a corner. Can you, and he says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do, okay? Think about this very quickly for a moment. King Agrippa is a politician, okay? He's probably inclined towards the Sadducees. Most of the politicians were. Um, I'm not sure that he would have been so worried about the prophets. But he couldn't say this in front of the Jews that were gathered there. Uh, so Paul exposes Agrippa's political interests and concerns. He, had he agreed with Paul the, uh, about the prophets, he would have, pro- he would have been possibly agreeing with Paul that he was revealing the ultimate truth in Christ. Had he disagreed, he would incur the wrath of the Pharisees, right, Uh, about uh, with respect to the resurrection. So what's his response? He he deflects the question, okay? He 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 replies to Paul and says basically, in a short time, uh, you will persuade me to become a Christian. That is to say, do you really think you can convince me that easily, okay? And it's amazing because the, it sets up this softball opportunity for Paul to do what he's really there to do. He says, I would wish to God that whether in a short time or a long time, not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. That is free, free in Christ Jesus. So Paul, know what he's doing here. He's preaching to the crowd, not Agrippa. He's engaged in evangelism, not his own defense. And he's evangelizing the very people who despised him the most, the Pharisees. Ironically, the ones who, who sought hardest to kill Paul were the ones who were most closely aligned with him, both theologically and doctrinally, okay? So he, he's preaching their message, but he's preaching the whole message. He's preaching the coming of Messiah that they're so long um, wanted to, to have. I just want to point one thing really quickly out that comes out for me of this, and that is sometimes it's the people who are closest to you who can be the hardest to reach, For a a thing in seminary, I interviewed a couple of, uh, an imam, and I interviewed a Hindu priest, and I interviewed a rabbi. It was the rabbi who had the biggest issue with me. It was the rabbi who had the biggest issue with with Jesus. And that's true in our own lives, the people closest to us sometimes can be the hardest to deal with. So uh, we learned that Paul's response to this is, is really important. He doesn't get angry. He just continues loving and trying to share the gospel. That's exactly what we were called to do. All right, so conclusion uh, I'm, I know I've gone a little over, so let me just quickly wrap up. Um, uh, Agrippa said to Festus, "This might man might ha- be, have been set free had he not appealed to Caesar." So note, Agrippa, the king of the Jews, validates Paul's defense, and Festus's conclusion: there's no legal right to hold Paul, uh, only a political one." And uh, uh, So we might ask us, did, did Paul make a mistake here? Did he blow it when he, when he appealed to Caesar when he could have been free? Not at all. Paul was merely doing, uh, being obedient to the plan of God. You might recall uh, the moment when Jesus was with Paul right after going before the council. I don't know if you talked about that last week. Um, but it says this. It says, but on the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side and said, take courage for you, uh, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness in Rome also. Okay. Paul had to go to Rome, by whatever means. He's called to witness there. So, Paul had the truth. God had a plan. He was using Paul to make his truth known. just says he's using us. Uh, I think it was Mark Twain who once said, if you tell the truth, you don't have to remember anything, right? And I think he's got a point. We know the truth. We know the story. We just need to stick to it, and we just need to tell it, okay? So, There's some discussion uh, questions. Uh, Let me pray for us, and then we'll get to those. Father God, we do know the truth of who you are and what you've done through us, through Jesus on the cross, through his death and resurrection, Lord. We know, Lord, that uh, we proclaim you are Lord from our mouths and believe in you and your resurrection in our hearts, Lord. We know we have an eternity with you. Lord, I pray for everybody in our world to to accept this. And I pray, Lord, that you'd give us faithful witness to step out into the world, share this truth, no matter the cost, no matter what, Lord, but to share in love and grace, Lord. Thank you for these men this morning, and I thank you for the opportunity to serve you, our holy God, in Jesus' name. Amen.